last week. And just a quick review of what we talked about last week. Um, God has given me really one message. And that is that huge parts of the church are worshiping a God that they have made themselves. That they have changed God to fit what they believe instead of changing what they believe to what God says. Along with that, there's a secondary thing that comes in, that once we begin to understand who God is and who we really is, then that changes what we think about ourselves. It's in there. So, we started last week with Isaiah 6.1, and we're going to go back there again tonight and go through it. Uh, so six, Isaiah 6, verse 1. Um, when you, I'll give you a couple minutes to get you there. Okay. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand the live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. We'll stop there. What we talked about, there are a couple things that I want to bring up again that I brought up last week. The first is that you noticed Isaiah's response. That he was confronted with the holiness of God. And this is Isaiah, who was, by human standards, he was a good man. But he was confronted with the holiness of God, and he said, Woe is me, for I am undone. Which, the word literally means what it sounds like. It means coming apart at the seams. That he was just disintegrating. That the holiness of God did that to him. The other part is that I want to bring up that I think is important is that when the angels said, holy, 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 they didn't say it three times because it fits well in worship songs. Um, there is a device in Hebrew literature and poetry, and it's called repetition. Duh. Um, so, if you want to emphasize something, you repeat it. 
And so if you repeat it twice, it means listen to this. I mean, Jesus did that when he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, which is truly, truly, I say unto you. He's saying, this is important. Listen to it. This is truth. On really rare occasions, something is repeated three times. And that means that it is superlative. It is beyond compare. It is out of this world excellence. So God is not holy or even holy, holy. He is holy, holy, holy. And we've lost that somewhere. Um, It is the only attribute of God that is mentioned that way. The Bible never says he is love, 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 or mercy, 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 or grace, grace, grace. But he is holy, holy, holy. And the last point I want to bring out from last week is that only God is holy in and of himself. We call all sorts of things holy. You know, when Moses saw the burning bush, the Lord told him, take off your shoes for you're on holy ground. Well, there was nothing special about the ground. What was special is who was there. You know, God made the ground holy. The ground was holy because God was there. The holy bread in the tabernacle tabernacle was holy because it was in front of God. Okay. So, how do men react when they witness holiness and when they come in contact with holiness? Um, Let's turn to second, and there are a variety of ways. One of them we're going to look at is in 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 9. So let me know when you're there. Oh, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 6, starting in verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of the God, or the ark of God, which is the presence of God in the Old Testament, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart 
and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there before the ark of the Lord. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Um, that gets you real quiet, doesn't it? Um, there are a couple things in this. That, first off, David was afraid. As well, he should be. But going further, doesn't that seem a little harsh? I mean, quite honestly, if, you know, I, I mean, God does a lot of things sometimes that we wonder if they're, you know, we wonder about them. Um, why was it harsh? You know, we look at it as, I mean, I have this mental picture in my head of, I kind of think of the road they were on, it was kind of like those roads in Mexico, you know, where there are ruts and dips in them and, the, and they're going through. Maybe it had been raining a little bit and it was muddy. And the Ark of the Covenant was going to fall in the mud. And poor Uzzah, he just reached out his hand to keep it from falling in the mud, to keep the ark of the Lord from being defiled. And God struck him dead. I think the question we have to ask is which one would defile the ark of the Lord more? Falling in the mud or being touched by a human hand? The mud isn't in rebellion to God. And in fact, the one time God allowed himself to be put in the hands of humans, they crucified him. I mean, I think what we'll find through all this is that somewhere something happened to our thinking in the Garden of Eden when we fell. And we don't think right. I mean, we our thinking is exactly the opposite a lot of times of what God is. In fact, you know, my thoughts are not, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Um, there are other ways that men react with the holiness of God. Turn to Mark 
On the same day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side. Now when they had left the multitude, they took him along in the boat as he he was, and other little boats were also with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that it was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a pillow. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, I have not been to Israel, but I have it on good authority that the Sea of Galilee is really fickle. That because of the topography there and the whole thing, winds can just come up out of nowhere. And the sea can be calm one minute, and ten minutes later, it's got huge waves. Okay, having said that, these men were fishermen. I mean, they weren't afraid to, to cross. They didn't hesitate at all. I mean, I, I've been told there are people today who won't sail on the Sea of Galilee because it is so unpredictable. But they weren't like that. I mean, they weren't afraid because they knew the sea. And all of a sudden, one of those storms came up. Now, I'm not even going to get into the point that while they're fighting to stay alive, Jesus is sleeping. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's a whole other sermon in, in, in itself. Um, I'm going to look at, they said, Teacher, don't you care that we were perishing? That really wasn't a question. That was an accusation. I mean, they were saying, we're perishing and you're sleeping. What's wrong with you? (laughs) He He didn't even answer their question. He just spoke and he said, be still. And the waves stopped. And the wind stopped. And their response was, who can this be? I mean, he didn't stick his hand in the water and and touch it and all of a sudden it calmed down. Or he didn't pray to God. He didn't pray to his father and say, Father, calm this storm. He did it just with the sound of his voice. The words that he spoke did it. Now, if you're with somebody like that, you realize this is no ordinary Joe here. I mean, this is somebody special. And we don't know how to deal with people like that. I mean, we don't know how to deal with people like that. Um, They didn't know what to think. Okay, we're going to go a couple more. 
Luke 5, we're going to go to Luke 5, 1 through 8. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gesenera, which is the Sea of Galilee. I mean, the Jews couldn't really decide whether it was a lake or a sea, and they changed back and forth between one and the other. And saw two boats standing by the lake. But the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, we have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. Well, Let me paraphrase that for you. He said, we're professional fishermen. We know how to catch fish, and we've fished all night and haven't caught anything. And what do you think you're doing telling us to go go out and let down our nets for a catch? But Simon answered and said, Master, we have, okay. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, isn't that an odd response? I mean, Peter was a fisherman. I mean, he didn't say, wow, this is a lot of money here. I mean, he, you know, he was selling his fish. I mean, that's how he, that's how he made his living. He didn't say, man, thanks, Jesus, for the windfall. But again, it was obvious that he was in the presence of someone that he couldn't define. So he said, Lord, go away, I'm a sinful man. If you go over to Luke 13... And we're going to start in one, which is which I've always wondered about this scripture. I mean, it seems kind of uncaring, but I think again it shows that we've lost the ability to think the way we should. 
or we lost it. I think we're, we're I shouldn't say we've lost it. We're gaining it back. <laughs> but, but, uh, uh, but it, it automatically doesn't hit us. So there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that those Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Shalom fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And that always kind of troubled me. You know, it seems kind of a, an uncaring thing. I mean, part of it is they were looking at him as the Messiah. And so the first part, when they said, you know, they told him about Pilate mingling the blood of Galileans with their sacrifice, they said, Jesus, you know, you're the Messiah. Do you know that Pilate killed Galileans while they were sacrificing? Actually, their blood was mixed with the blood of their sacrifice. What are you going to do about it? I mean, that's what they expected from their Messiah. Their Messiah was going to write all those things. And his response, really, to paraphrase it, is, you're asking the wrong question. The question you should be asking is, why doesn't that happen to all of you? You know, the Tower of Shalom, do you think those people were any worse than any other people? The question should be, why, you know, the, the question you should be asking is, why doesn't that happen to all of us? We're all in rebellion to God. It's the same It's like the question, you'll get questions today saying, you know, how could a loving God allow war? How could a loving God allow this or that or whatever? And the inference is that God is unfair or unjust. The truth is, God never deals with us unfairly or unjustly. He either deals, he deals with us in one of three ways. He deals with us mercifully, which means he doesn't give us what we deserve. Or he deals with us graciously, where he gives us something good, that we don't deserve or he deals with us justly but he gives us what he deserves quite honestly if you look at it he deals with us 
99.9999999% of the time, either mercifully or graciously. Thank God. But it is so common that he does that, that when he does deal justly, we're offended by it. I mean, we are offended by it. Why? Um, little over 500 years ago, there was a guy who got it. Um, he was a legal student at the university, and he was one of the most brilliant minds in all of Europe. Um, and he was walking from one village to another one day, and it started raining. And as he got closer and closer to the village, it started lightning. And then the tree next to him was hit by lightning and it knocked him to the ground. And he was scared to death. And he cried out, he's, he, he cried out, he's Catholic, as everyone was in that time. And he cried out and said, Saint Anne, if you save me, I'll become a monk. Well, he survived it. His name was Martin Luther. There have been stories about Luther that he was crazy. You know, I mean, if you look, read historically, I mean, he was mentally imbalanced. I think what they're missing is that this guy was, was a genius with the law. Most of us can read the law of God or look at the law of God and realize that, and we know that we can't keep it. I mean, we know we can't, so we kind of think God must grade on a curve. You know, he has to make exceptions. Because that's the only way, <laughs> that's the only way we can be saved. Well, Luther realized, because of his study of the law and his legal mind, that God couldn't grade on a curve without compromising his holiness. He, the stories that I read said that he would spend like six hours a day in confession. I mean, he, he looked at it, I mean, one of the things that he looked at, Jesus, you know, the young man asked Jesus, what's the, greatest, the great commandment? And Lee was talking about it earlier, you know, the great commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second, love your neighbor as yourself. If we were to be honest with ourselves, I don't think there's anyone in this room who loves the Lord their God 
with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength for more than a couple hours at a time. And so, if that's the great commandment and you can't do it, then I guess you're not being able to do it is the great transgression. I mean, if that's the most important thing and we can't do it, we have trouble. <laughs> so, he spent time, just all kinds of time reading or going to confession six hours a day. They told him, you know, they thought he was trying to get out of work. You know, spending so much time in confession. And at one point, one of his confessor told him, said, God's not angry with you, you're angry at God. And he actually said that in some of his writings. So, this was a miserable man. And then one day, he happened to be reading in Romans. So, turn to Romans For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And all of a sudden, a light bulb went off in Luther's head, over Luther's head. That is how, in Luther's legal mind, if you were justified by faith, then all of a sudden you could do it. All you had to do was believe. All you had to do was believe. I want to go back to For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone. I mean, we throw that word salvation around. We say, I'm saved. But saved from what? I mean, if you're saved, or if there is a salvation, you have to be saved from something. And... Being in Europe a lot... I mean, I think that there, I see huge parts, and not, thankfully, not people here. I think people in this church are okay, but in many churches in the United States, 
And in most churches in Europe, they couldn't tell you what they're saved from because they don't believe there are any consequences for not being saved. I mean, they don't believe that quite honestly, man, once man reaches the age of accountability, whatever that is, your default position is you're going to hell. And we don't like to hear that. It's negative. We don't like it. It scares us. But it's the truth. Unless something changes, we're going to hell. And actually, if you read we're going to read the rest of this chapter, and it really says that. I mean, they kind of ignore that. But it says that. After it says, the just shall live by faith, the next verse is, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest, manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. Which means you don't have an excuse. I mean, you can go out and look at the sky. I mean, if no one has told you about Jesus... You can go out and look at the sky and look at the sun comes up every morning and know that there must be a God. Amen. Amen. Um, by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because though, although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were, thankful, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Uh, verse 22 is kind of the description of our age. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. I mean, doesn't it... Doesn't it kill you when you hear all these people who, who laugh at us or they're so wise because, you know, homosexuality is okay. You know, abortion is just a woman's right to choose. You know, in James, it says, being friends with the world makes you an enemy with God. For years, I mean, there have been different groups of people who have used that verse, and because of that, they drive around in horse and buggies because they don't want to be part of the world and drive a car. And they're, you know, and they're, they're women where dresses down to their ankles because they don't want to be of the world and dress fashionably and stuff like that. I didn't know what that means at all. Being friends with the world 
is when it's kind of Brother Larry hit on it, being a doer of the word. I mean, in James, you know, being a doer of the word instead of a hearer, you know, and not just a hearer. When you say, when you agree with the, when the world says that things God says are wrong, when they say it's okay and you agree with them, you have made yourself a friend of the world. And there are huge, huge numbers of people who profess to be Christians who have done that. Um, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. Even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the women of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men, receiving what is shameful and receiving or committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. Homosexuality is just a natural result of a nation turning away from God. I mean, we can, you know, uh, we have, we've done all kinds of studies on what makes this, and, and the simple truth is, it is the natural result of a nation turning away from God. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do such things which are not fitting being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. That's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy. Now, The good news. (laughs) The good news is God has made a way to escape that. Turn to 1 Corinthians 2 2. (laughs) 
Uh, for those of you who attend here regularly, you will recognize this verse, I'm sure. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> for I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's the answer. That's the answer. I mean, I talked earlier, or last week when we talked about it, I mean, the dream of mankind forever, righteous mankind forever, is to see the face of God. You know, and, and Christians say, you know, when we see him, we will be like him. You know, the Jews in the blessing said, you know, may the, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he, is, may he cause his countenance to shine upon you. That's his face shining on you. Because of what Jesus did, and him, Jesus and him crucified, we can do that. We can, if you look in the Old Testament, once a year, the priest went into the Holy of Holies. They tied a rope around it in case God struck him dead. If he did, if they went in to get him, everyone else that went in after him, they'd just be falling over one, you know, one after another. So they tied a rope around him so they could pull him out. Without, Because of what Jesus did, we can go into the Holy of Holies and be assured of a warm welcome. God says, welcome into my Okay, how does this happen? And the point of this is, God has not changed. The same God, this God is the same God that struck Uzzah dead for touching the Ark of the Covenant. He hasn't changed. One of the things that happened is that I don't think, you know, we we are really well versed that Jesus took all of our sins upon himself at the cross and paid for them. One of the things that I think some people know, but others don't, but we also received his righteousness. And that's how this happens. That's how this happens. So we went to 1 Corinthians 2, 2. Where do you think we're going next? <laughs> Go to John. John 3, but we're going to start at th verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Or the kingdom of God, I'm sorry. That is how. Because we are born again. 
We are not the same creation. I mean, I can't guarantee this, but I would almost be willing to bet you that if you took a DNA sample from a person, an unregenerated person, and he was saved, and you took another DNA sample, you would find out that there's something a little different in it. I mean, we are a completely new species. We are a completely new species, and that's how we can see God face to face. And it's not anything that we've done. It is what he's done. Okay, so now we're going to John 3.15. That whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And that's what we were talking about. If you haven't believed, you're already condemned. You didn't have to do anything to be condemned. You already are condemned. That is your default position. You are condemned. I know that there are people there are some people who are really uncomfortable with teaching these kind with, with hearing these kind of things. But I don't know how you can really appreciate what God has done for us if you don't realize where we were headed. I mean, you shouldn't be, you know, that shouldn't make you sad and say, oh, God is so awful. You know, he was going to do that. I mean, think of what he saved us from. You know, you might... You might disagree with a lot of things God does, and maybe you'd do things different if you had your own universe. But guess what? You don't have a universe. You know, you don't have a universe. You know, the one thing that I know is I know that God is the creator, and I know that I am a created being. And I know that there's a difference. I know that there's a difference. I don't have, I mean, if God decided that people with white hair and white beards couldn't eat bacon anymore, I wouldn't be happy. And I don't think Larry would either. But he's God. Now don't do that, God. Uh, Okay. I think that One of the things that we, in Scotland, we are a, we are part of a group called the Filling Station. And uh, it is an extra church group. And and we are looking, one of the things that we're praying for and looking for is revival in Scotland. 
And we had a meeting one time. And there was a huge revival in Lewis, which is an island off the west coast of Scotland. And this was from 19, ran from 1949 to 1952. And in this revival, uh, people would be driving along the road and have to stop and pull over by the side of the road and they were crying and saying, God, save me. They had, it's an island of like 6,000 people and they were holding service. They would have a service at nine o'clock at night and then the service would be full and there would be another service full of people standing outside waiting to get in at 11. And so they would have another service at 11 and they would get done at two o'clock in the morning. And the preacher's name was a guy named Duncan Campbell. And he was fire and brimstone. I mean, he was basically, you know, you're on your way to hell. I mean, things that we really wouldn't be comfortable with today. And then he wouldn't let people be saved. I mean, he wouldn't let them come up and pray. During the service, they would have after-service meetings where they would meet in people's houses. And that's where the people were saved. And his comment was, this, let them stew in it for a while. You know, he had, there was a letter he wrote to the board that he was reporting to in Edinburgh. And when they were talking about, uh, it was in the town of Beavis, which is a, which is a city on the island of Lewis. And he wrote back and said, uh, last night for both services, we had 600 people. And in the after services, we had, we had 150 people converted to the Lord. And he said, I think revival is getting ready to break out any minute now. If we had 150 people saved in one service, we wouldn't know what to do. We wouldn't know what to do. That's what can happen when God moves. Anyway, we had a person, so we were talking about this. And a woman said, this woman said, and she's actually a co-pastor of a church. Scotland said, well, there isn't another great revival coming, but this time it's going to be about God's love, not about all that stuff. That is God's love. That is God's love. I mean, the fact is, that is our default position. And if you tell somebody, that's not being hateful, that's being loving. You know, when you look at Revelation and all of the all of the judgments and all of the I mean it seems really harsh. 
Well, there are a couple things to remember in that first off, it is the enemies of God being judged. And secondly, each judgment is a cry saying, repent. I'm here, listen to me. I mean, you know, God didn't have to, I mean, there are seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. Now that's 21 different, why not just one? I mean, he's been playing around with us for 6,000 years. You know, why not just one judgment and end it? And get it all over with. Each one is a chance for people to repent. So even in his judgments, there is love. And there is actually mercy in his judgments because each one beyond the first one is merciful. You know, the other thing is, is that I put on here that, you know, there have been two really important revivals in America. You know, in the 1730s and 40s, the Great Awakening. And if you want to read something one time, I challenge you to get online and look up Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. And it'll scare the crap out of you. I mean, it really will. You talk about fire and brimstone. I was reading it to Debbie, and, and you know, it's stuff like, you foolish man, don't you realize that you are hanging by a thread over the flames of hell? And it is only God's hand that's keeping you from, you know. Uh, the other one, and, and when he initially gave this sermon, there were people holding on to trees because it became real to them. I mean, they felt like they were falling into hell. And he gave it again, and nothing happened. I mean, that was a one. I mean, you know, it was a one-time thing. The other is, you know, an hour and twenty minutes drive from here. And you, and if you get a chance to go, you should go. Uh, it's in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And this was in 1801. And. Uh, it's just kind of like God. This thing was put on by Presbyterians. And it was sponsored by a Presbyterian church. And everything was going along fine. And then all of a sudden, some Methodist minister, nobody knows, nobody knows who he was. Nobody even knows what he spoke about. It wasn't recorded. But he spoke and all of a sudden the glory came down. They could hear people wailing and crying five miles away. So there is a place <laughs> for the uh, 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 for the for the things that we are you know the kind of preaching that we are ashamed of today. I mean, the only thing that I would caution you is I have heard people preach that kind of way and I kind of got the impression that they were kind of glad that was going to happen. 
If you don't love people, don't preach that way. You know, if it doesn't break your heart that someone, that that could happen to someone, then don't preach that way. Because you're just going to come across as, as, uh, as legalistic. Okay. Um, I really don't know how to end this. <laughs> uh, oh, one thing I will say, and it's kind of interesting, because um, I get, I'm, I, I have the impression someone needed to hear this. Because right before we were starting, all of a sudden, I got this overwhelming sense of panic that you aren't prepared. You know, you aren't, uh, you haven't studied this enough. Who are you to think that you can say things like this? And normally that kind of stuff happens. I beat myself up afterwards and say, I wasn't prepared enough, I wasn't, but this was beforehand. So, uh, so hopefully it hit with